We all have our ways and our habits and our tendencies and our beliefs that don't allow us to shine, don't allow us to blossom. And one of those ways, one of those habits of mind is uh, self-talk, the way that we judge ourselves and criticize ourselves, undermine ourselves, doubt ourselves, belittle ourselves. So in my experience, both in my own life and my own practice, which I've been on this path now for almost 30 years and working with many, many, many students uh, in different capacities all over the world, I see that this tendency of mind to be harsh with ourselves, to be cruel to ourselves with our self-talk is incredibly destructive, incredibly mm, hampering to our well-being, to our happiness. It's not something intrinsic to who we are. It's it's an addition. It's a a layer. As the Buddha talked about, a habitual tendency that doesn't really serve our well-being. So um, I do I do this workshop here and other places because it feels really important to look at this part of our mind. And as you can see, it's a popular day. <laughs> it's a popular topic. <laughs> Not a happily popular topic, but a, a, a common topic. Yeah? Sometimes we think we're alone. I'm the only one who's just down on myself and feels hopeless and small and insufficient and not enough. Right? Well, if you look around, right, you're in good company. Um, so, and it, in my experience, I, I, you know, growing up, I didn't really have, nobody ever told me about this part of the mind, like how to work with it or what it even was. It just seemed like part of the mind. That's what you do. You just you know, get on your case and bully yourself and give yourself a hard time, and that's otherwise you wouldn't get out of bed. <laughs> you wouldn't do anything unless you're really, you know, gr- dr- grueling and drilling yourself. So, and then through mindfulness practice and meditation, learning how to be aware of our thoughts, be aware of our mind, take some to step back in awareness and to see, oh, wow, this this thought process is really, really quite painful and, uh, and largely unhelpful and often quite destructive. And having a mindfulness, having a mindful awareness that gives us capacity to take a step back and to see it and go, oh, you know, what mindfulness does is it, is it provides space and clarity to see ourselves and our minds and our hearts and to and to discern, well, what's useful? What brings happiness and what brings pain? That's really the, the essence of the Buddha's teaching, to use that mindful awareness to discern what, causes, what, what continues and deepens our own suffering or what allows us to be free, to find peace, to find well-being, to find other ways and habits and tendencies that promote uh, peace and kindness and forgiveness and love and acceptance. 
so I was um, doing some reading in, in the literature yesterday, and uh, there's a, a couple of writers, Early and Weiss, um, had names for, th there's lots of names for the critic, the judge, they have they have seven they had seven types that I that I liked uh, the perfectionist and see so see which one you resonate with the perfectionist the taskmaster the inner controller the guilt tripper the destroyer the underminer the molder and I would add to that the shamer the killjoy the belittler the self doubter what else do you, what else do you know your critic as Anybody? What other ways do you experience it? Any other names? Self-flagellation. The self-flagellator. Yeah. What else? The not good enough. The never good enough. Yeah. Pardon? Not ready yet. Not ready yet. Right. What was that at the back? The bully. The bully. Yes, the bully, the tyrant, the inner tyrant. The motivator. The motivator. Yeah. Motivator with a jab. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's not like, yeah, you can do it. It's great. You're yeah. great. It's like, you better. How <laughs> 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 oh, you're in for it. <laughs> the punisher. The punisher. Yes, the punisher. The shamer. The love squasher, yeah, the joy killer, yeah. Prison guard. The prison guard, yeah. <laughs> Keeping watch, yeah, that's good. The victim, mm-hmm, the victim and the victimizer, yeah. Any other names for our little pet? <laughs> that we, that tags itself along with us for Many, many years. The, rain, the critical parent, yes, the critical parent. We internalize the critical parent. Yes. The rain cloud. Mm -hmm. So lots of different ways that we can feel this, we can know this, we can experience it. I was uh, I was in I was at Kaiser yesterday, and it's always my chance to read kind of trashy magazines. And um, there was one, there was some kind of health body, have, you know, create the perfect body magazine, which is talking about a setup for suffering. Yeah. <laughs> perfect abs in two weeks. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, and on the front page, I had to, I had to tear it off. <laughs> it not great, but I just couldn't resist. It said, get moving, tricks to squash your inner slacker for good. <laughs> so stop slacking off. <laughs> get down to the gym, get that perfect body. Hmm. Hmm. So in the context of uh, the Buddhist teachings, how the critic fits in, because uh, um, the, the Buddha didn't talk in that way so literally about the inner critic, and I imagine, I don't know, but 
I have a sense that the inner critic was less pervasive then than there's now. I can't know that. But the often in in that in that era, and similar with the era with Jesus, the 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 teachings were given through story and parable and metaphor. So, and the metaphor of, of the critic comes in the form of a personification uh, uh, into a person or a deity called Mara. Mara is, is the personification of darkness, of ignorance, of blindness, uh, and death and destruction. And so often the Buddha is in, in, in a text, it's written Buddha is in dialogue with Mara. Mara shows up which is really a personification of his own unconscious. And he most prominently came at the night of his enlightenment. When the Buddha was sitting, the Buddha had vowed, he sat under the root of the Bodhi tree and vowed not to move from that seat until he attained full awakening, fully understand the nature of his being and what created suffering and what created freedom. And to know that from his friend, in his own experience. And when he was at the cusp of, of awakening, Mara arrives and in the form of in the form of doubt, form of self-doubt. And I'm sure you know this when you're sitting meditating. And the voice says from Mara, Who do you think you are to take this throne of awakening? Who do you think you are to take this all the great Buddhas of the past have sat in this seat And look at you, you're just a scruffy monk. Who do you think you are? And the Buddha, of course, in that time, sitting in great clarity and equanimity, didn't react. He touched his hand to the earth, which is personified here. It's called a Bhumaspasha mudra, touching his hand to the earth. He said, the earth is my witness. The earth is my witness. I deserve to be here. I have a right to be here. Such a beautiful metaphor, and it speaks to something much deeper than to our minds. The earth is my witness. The earth, just by my being here, by my existence, I have value and I have worth, and I'm worthy as a human being to wake up. Why wouldn't I? And we all have that within us. So, and of course, you'd think, you'd hope, like uh, after the Buddha got enlightened, that that would be the end of Mara. You know, we may have these experiences or whatever, uh, our our own transformations and awakenings, or we go to a workshop and we feel free for a while and we hope that it never comes back. And then, of course, guess what? It comes back. (laughs) It's very tenacious. The egoic structures are very tenacious. And so often, you know, even on the Buddha's deathbed, uh, Mara is saying, you know, just let it all go. Just, just die. You know, it's, you've, you've lived a hard life. You know, you, you can go rest in nirvana. Just, just let, all the, let the community of monks and nuns go. You've done enough. And, and, every, and every time the Mara appears, at some point, they're, they're, in a, they're in some dialogue, and at some point the Buddha says, Mara, I see you. Mara, I see you. And then when Mara is seen, he gets really disappointed. He pouts. He slumps over and then disappears. So, and again, it's the, f- it's the force of our awareness. When we, when we see clearly our mind and its ways, 
then we're no longer caught. It's when we don't see these tendencies, these habits, that we get caught, we believe them, we give them power, and then we, we, we collapse under and, and the strength of that, those words. So that's why it's essential that we bring mindfulness, we bring awareness to these voices um, that on one level we're very familiar with, because we hear them every day, another level they're so familiar that we don't see them. You know, it's just like people we live with, we don't really see them fully because we just, you know, they're just part of the furniture. We, 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 get, we get accustomed, we get habituated. So part of this day is we're, we're going to take a little step back and go, well, what is this pattern? What, is th- what are these thoughts? What's the value? What effect do they have? And how can I work with them more effectively than I currently am? So we'll be doing various practices and exercises that um, will explore how to work more directly, more overtly with your critic. Not just being mindful of it, but actually doing more active practices. So there's a cartoon that I think personifies really well uh, some ways that the critic manifests. It's called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. (laughs) Rhymes with oranges, rhymes with orange cartoon. So in the six captions and the woman thinking and doing various things, in the first she's thinking about somebody who's won something. She says, choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. (laughs) So notice if you've already done that today, you've looked around the room and Oh, they look really well dressed, or they look really spiritual. Or <laughs> I'm just this Joe Schmo kind of confused, and I'm late, and I've already done it wrong. How many people who are late and they're already feeling bad that they're late? <laughs> we noticed. <Yeah>. We noticed. Because <laughs> you know, there's a few judge pe- people who judge in this room. So, <laughs> examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws set up for suffering. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that happened years ago. (laughs) Relive moments that you feel terrible about. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Especially people who share your last name. And there's a a disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. So there's a comment, she's getting a compliment. Hey, you look great. She's thinking, don't patronize me. (laughs) And the last one is, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. So, you know, we could could add 50 more, right? Checklist to feeling pathetic. Maybe we should do that as an exercise today. Things you do (laughs) to feel pathetic. Always think about the things that you haven't done, like the, the messy closet and the dirty car and the emails unsent and the, right. So it's really important to have a sense of humor. Doing this work, this work is kind of heavy. The critic is kind of a heavy subject. But humor is the, is, is the I find, the most effective way to create space, to, to create a little distance and to make light of it, you know. Because if we can make light of it, we're not so caught in it and we're not so buried in it. Right? Sometimes not so easy to make light of it because it's painful. But the more we can, the more we can. You know, we can see it. It's just a human condition. 
It's, it's, a, it's, it's a universal part of the mind that happens to be, uh, you know, and I'll explain why, you know, the, why this critic is, has its origins, why it has its place in our psyche. But you see, it's just, it's just another impersonal force that blows through our house, blows through our mind, and we don't have to take it so personally as if we're doing something wrong. So, one of the ways the critic manifests that I see most pervasively is basically uh, there's, a, there's a viewpoint that's saying it's not okay to be you. It's not okay to be human. It's not okay to have foibles. It's not okay to have faults. It's not okay to be imperfect. And it, re- it reminds us again and again how we're not doing it right, how we're not doing it well enough, not smart enough, not sh- sharp enough, not beautiful enough, not kind enough, not mindful enough. How, c- how many people have a now a spiritual critic, a Buddhist critic? Yeah. <laughs> not compassionate enough, not free enough. Come on, get with the program. And the critic always has 20-20 hindsight. It's always really good at evaluating something you did. Why did you do that? Why did you go down Market Street when you know that Folsom was much quicker? Why did you, you who knows? We can't know the future. I, no, I notice a critic a lot with, with judgments about driving, about directions, about, oh, you should have gone this way. Why didn't you, you know better. You know, and sometimes the critic feels like it's on our side. It's, it, you know, it, with implicit within it is an attempt to try and help us, but the delivery and the energy that comes with is very undermining, very belittling, and very unkind, unforgiving. So I remember backpacking recently. I took a ba- friend backpacking last year. Uh, who'd never backpacked before. And I'm a very, and I love backpacking, and I spend a lot of time outside, and I don't think about it, I don't plan, I just throw some stuff in the bag and just hike. And, um, but I, I, was, I had someone un- under my care, and, and she had happened to have a very particularly hard time, and had some medical issues, and got bitten to death by mosquitoes. And, and I was just watching my critic, well, how come you didn't bring the first aid kit? And how come you didn't know there's gonna be mosquitoes here? And da 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 and then uh, and on an, another occasion, it, when I'm at home packing, it's like, well, you should just be more spontaneous. Just go. Just get in the car and be done already. <laughs> so whatever way you go, it's, you, you lose if you buy into that voice. So another voice I notice when I'm outside is, I love hiking alone, and the voice comes, well, how come you don't hike with other people? <laughs> What's up with that? Are you like phobic around people or something? <laughs> or I'm wanting to get to the top of the mountain. And like, come on, you can do it. Get up there. And then I get there. It's like, well, why did you rush? What was the rush? <laughs> you, missed, you, you missed half the walk. You're so goal-oriented. <laughs> if I don't get to the top, well, you're so lazy. <laughs> it's so much better at the top. You're missing out. Or on meditation retreats, or in your own practice, you you know you you're lying in bed in the morning, and and the voice would come. Oh, you know you've you've had a hard week. You need to rest. Just just stay in bed. You know, be good to yourself. They they all that spirit. They, people spirit work. They say, take care of yourself. Be nice. So you, so you lie in bed and you snooze, and then you get up half an hour later, and the critic's like, 
You're such a slacker. You didn't meditate. You, you committed to meditating and you didn't meditate. What's up with that? You've got no commitment, no follow-through, no discipline. This is from Sir Walter Scott. He said, Caught not the critic's smile, nor dread his frown. So sometimes, and often actually a lot, and I hear this in people's, in the subtext of people's conversation, is our actions are governed and dictated by trying to please the critic. We do things so we don't get the wrath of the critic when we don't do them or when we do something wrong. So we live in this tight fear place of dreading our own critic's wrath, which is prison. It's prison. It's confining. It's restrictive. Right? You know this? And then we project it out, of course. We think everybody else is judging us as harshly as ourselves, which, of course, is rarely the case. Rarely, rarely, rarely the case. I'm always astounded when I, when I share something that I'm judgmental about in myself to a friend or a partner, and, and one, they may not even see it or not even notice it and certainly don't care. <laughs> or may think it's cute and adorable. You know, it's, just some, it's just some idiosyncrasy that you have. So I was working uh, some years ago. I was doing some mindfulness consulting at a hedge fund that uh, this was pre-crash and they were doing very well. And I went into the office one day to work with a couple of people in there, one a trader and a CFO. And uh, there was a jubilant feeling in the office that day and I asked what was going on, and the, the trader had made a particularly good trade, and they, they, in that trade he'd made $50 million for the company, which I thought was not bad for a day's work. <laughs> and I got to see him later that day, and he looked incredibly stressed. And I was like, well, this, is, this doesn't fit the picture of someone who's just made a lot of money for the company and probably for himself. And I said, what's going on? And he said, you know, I knew I should have bought a little earlier, and if I'd held on a few more hours, I would have made a few more million. And it was such a clear example. It's never enough, right? 50 million or whatever the number is, it's not enough for the critic. Never satisfied. Never satisfied. And if we're trying to live in to appease that part of ourselves, it's, it's, it's hopeless, actually. So in the course, there's many different places our critics show up, and maybe we can take some time today about where the critic is most pervasive for you. For some people, it's work. Some people, it's health, body image. Some people, it's social skills. Some people, it's around money, around organizing. Anybody have it around relationship, around love? <laughs> and who doesn't have it around parenting? Yeah, it's, it's the, probably parenting is the hardest thing to do and the hardest thing to appease the critic because no one knows how to parent and you figure it out as you go along. And nobody does it perfectly because it's impossible. You do it as, as well as you can. This is from Annie Lamont. She says, I'm probably just as good a mother as the next repressed, obsessive, compulsive paranoiac. <laughs> 
So, so what's the function of the critic? Wh- wh- why is it here, and wh- what role does it serve in our in our makeup? It clearly has a function. So I'm going to read a couple of pieces from Freud, who talks about the critic as the superego, who was one of the first people to give voice to this part of our psyche. He said, the installation of the superego can be described as a successful instance of identification with the parent parental agency. While as development proceeds, the superego also takes on the influence of those who stepped into the place of parents, educators, teachers, people chosen as ideal models. So we take on the, the to, to, you know, as a young being that's completely and utterly dependent on the love and goodwill of our caretakers, our parents, family, culture around us, we have to fit in. We have to uh, find ways to be accepted and to be loved. And we receive those messages from the people around us, and then we internalize them to, in order to maximize our well-being to fit in with the family social structures. And he also said, the superego can be thought of as a type of conscience that punishes misbehavior with feelings of guilt and shame. So it punishes us because it's, it's, it's actually in, in necess- necessity for our survival that we fit in. And, and that the, the, the psyche has to have a very powerful mechanism to stop the natural forces and the spontaneity and, and energy and power of, a, of an infant. It has to have a strong mechanism in order to uh, mold our being so we we can fit into the to the the structures of the society that we're in so we can be accepted and loved so it's a, if you think about it it's a survival mechanism and it's it and it's the reason why it's powerful is because it's imprinted really early you know it's full i think it's fully developed by by about the age of eight seven or eight. But we, we're, in, we're, we're internalizing those messages from a very, very young age. You know? Like we're probably internalized not to be too wild, not to be too spontaneous, not to be too loud. Yeah. Or whatev- whatever the social norms of your family was. Not okay to be sad. Not okay to be too happy. In England, it's not okay to be too happy. <laughs> Someone asks you, how are you? say, not bad. Not bad, you know. Okay. <laughs> you, know, if we, you know, if you step off the plane from California and you say, I'm feeling great. They'll think, oh, look at that so-and-so. <laughs> Who does he think he is? <laughs> so think about the ways that you've had to internalize these messages from your parents, from your family from the church, from school, from educators. And then what happens is we internalize those messages and those voices and then they, they, uh, they persist on their own. So we're now 30, 40, 50, 60 years old and those same voices are still running as if our parents are still there. Because the, the fear, the association with losing that love and affection is very primal. 
So that's, that's explains to me the shaming mechanism. The shaming is a way to keep us in line so we, we act in the way that's most conducive for, for our well-being at that time. But of course, now when we're grown up, it's no, long, no longer necessary. We don't need to live by those rules except the mechanism in our head says we do. And we internalize also the, the criticism the, of the judges and the superegos of whoever's around us. So may we internalize the voices from our parents that told us we were good at some things and not so good at other things. Yeah. Or we internalize the way they spoke to themselves. So if our parents are very hard on themselves, most likely we will be. Even if they weren't very overtly critical with us, we just, we just mimic our parents. And, you know, from a Dharma perspective, from the perspective of these teachings, it's really important to see the, the, the painful nature of this pattern and to hold it with a lot of kindness and love. And we'll be doing some loving-kindness practice uh, because it's painful. The, we, we also experience the critic not just mentally, so often it's words, you're good, you're bad, you're this, you're that. But we also feel energetically. Sometimes we just feel like crap. We feel deflated, we feel hopeless, we feel pathetic, we feel not good enough. But there's no, nothing telling us that. We just feel it in our body, in our heart. We feel deflated. Yeah. That's when, the, what I think of that is, is the, the words have become subliminal and we've taken it on energe- energetically. Or we feel it emotionally, we just feel blah, we feel depressed when we wake up, we feel defeated. We feel it somatically, physically, as a, as a, as a collapse, as a, you know, we don't, we don't, the opposite of strong and bright and expansive, it's just like we close in in ourselves. So it's good to notice different kinds of ways that the critic manifests. So some of the ways that we experience this, we feel lethargic, heavy, dull, foggy-brained, hollow, claustrophobic, unfocused, hopeless, helpless, and despairing. Whoopie-doo, let's have a party. (laughs) Sounds really fun. (laughs) So the good news is we can really radically transform our relationship to the critic just as we can radically transform our relationship to anything, particularly through mindfulness and awareness. Without awareness, there's no hope. So mindfulness gives us the capacity to see clearly, to understand ourselves, to see what's going on in our, in our, in, in our, in our mind, in our hearts. And I've worked with many, many students and clients over the years with doing this work and have seen tremendous effects. Sometimes people get these tools and in a matter of weeks, they've, so, they've transformed their relationship. doesn't mean to say the critic evaporates because it doesn't necessarily, mostly not. But what changes is our relationship to it. What changes is the way that we relate to it. What changes is we recognize it as thought patterns, as thought streams. 
And as we rest in awareness, we see it's just a bunch of thoughts. So I was working with this uh, student on a retreat who is an actor, and of course being in that profession has developed, you know, it works with a lot of outer critics when you perform, any performing artist, and his own inner critic, and uh, had a particularly pernicious critic, and that was what came up a lot on retreat. And one day he was walking down the hill, and we'd, we'd spend a lot of time being mindful of thoughts, mindful of thinking patterns. He was walking down the, the, the hill, and his judge was giving him a hard time about not walking mindfully enough or something, as if, you know, you can, do, you can walk incorrectly. And, 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 and because he was so established in awareness, he was able to see, oh, it's just a bunch of thoughts. It's just a bunch of thoughts like the sky is blue, the grass is green, the flowers are pretty, and I'm a piece of crap. Oh, it's just a bunch of thoughts. <laughs> and it's th- they're real and painful if I give them that authority. But if I see it's just my mind doing its thing, just like in meditation, right? When we th- we're, we're, we're the orientation is to be quiet and still, and the mind's, I wonder when they're going to build a new meditation hall. Oh, I like those pants that lady's wearing. Huh, I wonder if they're from Saks. Or from we, there's an expectation that that mind will quiet, and sometimes it does if we're lucky, but mostly it just, it's just what the mind does, it yaks. And one of the yakking streams is self-judgment. And it's just, it's just what it does. And we don't have to take it that seriously. When we see it, it's just, it's just mm-hmm. oh, I messed up again? Oh, thanks. It's really helpful. <laughs> this talk could be better? Yeah, great. That's really useful. Thanks. And there's, there's a space, there's an ease, there's a disidentification, which is what mindfulness brings. We disidentify means we create space between us and it. And we just, just say, oh, it's just a pattern. Yeah, it's just like a yak, yak, yapping dog. A yapping dog might go away, but you cannot be bothered by it. You're just nipping at your ankles a little bit. So we're going to look at this specifically today about how mindfulness brings this space to see, oh, it's just thoughts. And they're only powerful if I give them authority. Right? For most of our lives, we've given the judge authority that it knows what's right, it knows it has a moral authority, it knows what's right and wrong, it knows what's best for us. Right? If we stop doing that, it, it ceases having its power. We can be free even though it continues to yak. Like I know... If I'm driving and I take the wrong turn, I know my critic's going to come up because I hate getting lost. And it's just like, oh, please. <laughs> Is that all you got to say? <laughs> yes, I could have taken the... Yeah, I'm so unmindful. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Mr. Mindful wins again. <laughs> or if I forget something, or I lose something, I misplace something. Great opportunity for the critic. Ugh, I can't believe you're a mindfulness teacher. I can't believe you spaced out again. <laughs> Yes, 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 I do. I'm human. Thank you. Thank you for the reminder. And then it's not a problem. It's just a little... mm. So the last thing I want to say is, um, and I want you to pay attention to this today, is the... the, I, I don't know how or why this happened. I can guess. I was uh, living in uh, in Norfolk in England where I was my first years of Buddhist practice. I was doing a lot of mindfulness of breath practice, a lot of loving kindness practice. 
and sitting in this trailer, which was our meditation hall on this farm. And, uh, and I had a very, very, very wicked critic, very self-judgmental judgment, self so of myself, very harsh, very unforgiving. And I don't particularly know why that had developed so strongly, but it had. And so I'd sit with it a lot, I'd sit with my imperfections and foibles and what wasn't right. He listened to my judge, giving myself a hard time. And at some point, I think because I was doing a lot of loving-kindness practice, at some point I just started feeling my heart and feeling the impact of all those negative statements. This years and years and years of self-berating. And it kind of broke my heart in a certain way. It's like it was so painful to feel the impact. It's, you know, imagine if you had, your best friend was with you for the last 40 years of your life or 10 years, or however long, however old you are, and you would tell you those things day after day after day, you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not smart enough, you're not worthy enough, you'll never get your shit together, right? It's painful, right? If, if someone says one of those things to us, it's painful. Or send us an email with slight, some intimation of that, it's painful, <laughs> right? And yet we do it to ourselves day in, day out, hour in, hour out. And if we let ourselves feel it, feel the impact in the heart, which we don't actually often do because it's, it's, it's a very strong mental mechanism and we sort of work with it with our mind. Uh, what happened is something snapped whereas I, th- that disidentification happened. It's like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to align with this part of me. I don't want to believe this part of me. Right? And again, it didn't disappear. It has pervaded, it's cyclical. I have waves, it comes and goes. Some years it's pretty quiet and then it, another wave comes up depending on what's happening in my life or relationships or whatever. Um, but I, 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 want, I want you to feel that. When, when you notice you're judging yourself today, like right now, are you judging yourself? If you're judging yourself or thinking about the ways you judge yourself, feel your heart, feel, feel how it's been to talk to yourself like that, to reject yourself like that, to punish yourself like that. Yeah? It's, not, it's not fun, it's not pretty, it's painful. And when we, when we ally with the heart, we feel the suffering, what, what happens, it allows compassion to come. Just like if you're, if you're with your best friend, and I'm sure you've had times when, when they're just beating up on themselves, right, for not doing something good enough, for messing up, for forgetting something. And you just, you're just there forgiving them. It's like, honey, of course, we all mess up. We all screw up. It's part of being human. You're still a lovely, beautiful human being. Right? That's how we want to be with ourselves. Like, yes, we all mess up all the time. It's part of being human. There's a great line from Zen. It says, Zen is stumbling from one mistake after another. You know, enlightenment is stumbling from one mistake to another. So, um, that's enough words for now. So, what I'm going to ask you to do is we're going we're to meditate for a little bit, just to sit with this, sit with ourselves. Um, Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.